New Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the grieving process in the afterlife. My guest is known as August Goforth in his work as a spiritualist medium, a psychophysical medium. And he's also a practicing psychotherapist, and he keeps these two professions separate. Uh, he practices psychotherapy under his birth name. He is the author of The Risen, Dialogues of Love, Grief, and Survival Beyond Death, about which we've done a previous interview. I'm going to link to it right now because you might uh, appreciate watching that interview first if you haven't seen seen it already. He's also the author of The Risen, A Companion to Grief, which will be our focus today. And now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, August. It's a pleasure once again to be with you. It's so nice to see you again, Jeff. Thank you. We're going to look at the grieving process, and, and there's something very paradoxical about it. I know in the introduction to your book, uh, The Companion to Grief, uh, a lovely introduction by my friend Michael Tim. He talks about the, the great writer Morris Metterlink and his notion that there's really nothing to be sad about when, when somebody dies. And actually, it could be viewed as a joyous a, occasion. And I think in rare instances, people view it that way. But for the most part, grief is not a joyful process. For most of us, we can um, agree with that experience. That, and it's interesting that it appears to me that culturally we're taught that grief is not supposed to be a joyful practice. I mean, there are different cultures that are exceptions um, that celebrate it more as it makes the celebration in with the morning. But the book, as it was transmitted, is the word I'll use to me, wanted to invite me to explore, invite everyone to explore the idea that grief is energy and it's a particular energy, as Einstein told us, that um, can be transformed. Energy can be transformed. So, my, I was curious, you know, can the grief that we experience be transformed into something better? And the answer that came back unequivocally was yes, and not only better, um, but it's supposed to. It's supposed to be a process that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we're not meant to get stuck in our grief, but we do. We tend to to get stuck in our grief, and then we develop belief systems um, arising out of that and um, responses arising out of that as well. You and your early life write about having lost many close friends and relatives at a, a, at a young age. To me, that didn't seem unusual. It, it wasn't treated as unusual. Um, the death process, the transition process in my, my family and extended families was treated as uh, a natural thing. And it was not a time to give up hope, but of course, to grieve and to mourn and then to um, 
continue to move on with life. I often heard my parents and the older people around me say things like that. Well, they would want you to move on with your life. They're watching you. They're around you. And that was very comforting even to me as a small child. One of the interesting things in your book that that I found was a list of things not to say to people who are grieving, like, uh, um, you'll get over it. It's very hard watching someone that we love so much in the deep pain and the throes of grief. And what we are really hoping for is we want to feel better. So we would like them to feel better. And so we're going to try to find things to make them feel better so that we'll feel better. The answer to that is to less is more. To say as little as possible, first of all, the person in grief most likely is not even listening or not even able to hear what you're saying. Perhaps they can hear the soothing tones and comfort of your voice. And so you can make soothing noises to them in some way, but often um, they're in shock in some sort of a way and they're operating at a very um, different level of resistance to stress and anxiety. So the, the less that we say and the more we stay, the better it turns out is just to, if they're probably feeling lost and abandoned in some way, but our presence there counters that feeling of abandonment. So just sitting there is a great gift to them and to us, too. And not everyone can do that. It takes some practice. In other words, just be with the person without trying to change them in any way, but allow them to have their process. Right. They're missing very much the presence of the person who's gone on. And your presence is still a valid, important, and necessary presence that they'll, their bodies, at least, will pick up and feel, and they won't feel so alone or abandoned. Um, of course, we want to maybe see to their needs just to make sure that they have food and water and get rest, plenty of rest, and because usually for them, self-care goes out the window. Um, so that can help us too, is caring for them in those ways. As a parapsychologist and an interviewer, I've had the opportunity, in fact, recently to speak to a number of people about the, the grieving process and about the transition from life to death and the afterlife. I've heard many different versions of, of how it goes, how, how it works. And, I, and I'm sure there are many different possibilities, but I wonder if I could reflect uh, some of these things with you and, and get your uh, feedback on them. For, for example, what about uh, the needs of uh, somebody who may have recently passed over? There are different traditions, like in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it's suggested that it's very important for the recently deceased that you read the uh, scriptures, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, to give them guidance of how to proceed as they enter the afterlife. So, what's the question? Well, how do you feel about that? Do Well, the reason I bring it up is because I recently interviewed another spiritualist medium who, who said, no, you know, don't worry about them. They're going to be fine. They're, you know, they're with God. Uh, we don't have to do anything for them. Spiritualists, um, including myself, although I'm not a religious spiritualist, but a, a, a medium of sorts, we're speaking from experience. 
And just in the way that there is a very diverse multicultural experience going on on our material planet right now, every culture has, you know, uh, millennia of developed ideas and beliefs and emotions and emotional responses. Um, th those are part and partial of human evolution and build into that moving forward to the expansion of the universe. And that moves forward into transition. Um, you had said transition from life to death. I would say transition from life to more life. And often we bring along those enculturated, uh, that's a word, but those enculturated beliefs along with us. Um, and we also believe that our loved ones take those belief systems along with them. So it would be a surprise to find out that maybe they don't as much as we think they do, that when they get there, it's more um, a chance it's almost impossible not to, you can't bring the baggage along with you. I think um, my, my transition friend, Tim said all the things that he wanted to bring along with him into the afterlife just kind of got lost in that big, that big baggage claims department in the sky that it, it doesn't come along with us, but we believe it do. So if it makes us feel better to um, participate in rituals and beliefs and guidance and advice, just like we're trying to tell the, the grieving person there, there, it's okay. That's fine. That's part of our healing process too. Um, I've watched um, people in spirit watch us and with mixtures of curiosity and amusement, um, you never worry or concern. And they see that we need apparently, or we believe we need these guidance systems, these rules, these regulations, these um, organized structures for our own our own benefit, and so they don't interfere with that in any way. So, if you have you know Tibetan have their belief through their culture, this is this is part of what supports their sense of well being, um, physical well being, mental well being, emotional well being. Well, I get the impression from our previous conversation, which in which we focus quite a bit about your relationship with Tim, that it's it's a mutual thing that uh, you interact with Tim, he gets some benefit from it, and you get some benefit from it. It's as if you're working with each other and you're both helping each other. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Is that typical, would you say, in the grieving process? No. Um, unfortunately, it, it ought to be. Um, but there is a kind of a rhyme and reason to the grieving process. And the main factor is time. And the way that we experience time here is not only different the way, say, maybe where Tim is, or someone like Tim is, experiences time. But each one of us, because we have our very unique bioform, we experience time in, in very specific ways. So these things take time. Um, I always admired the Victorian culture because they really took their time with grieving. They really amped it up and got into the fashion and, and rules and regulations about it, maybe a little bit too much. But they realized that time was necessary to get through the grieving process. Um, once that happens, if we're also setting our intention to stay connected to the person 
and it has to be a non-fear-based intention. Like we're not worried about them or afraid we've got to rescue them or they're in purgatory or something. It has to be a non-fear-based intention to connect with them. That is raising our spirit, so to speak, the vibration of our spirit. And that gets us closer to them in that way. And then that's where the work or even it's more like play um, comes in, into place because they're not taking their transition at all as seriously in the way that we might be. So it takes some time for us to kind of calm down and settle down, um, see to our own needs before we can start feeling that we're making a connection with these people and um, see if there is some sort of um, interplay going on. And often it's just learning more about life, like just listening to them. Uh, I, I think I suggest somewhere in the book, like it's just nice to connect with them and tell them how your day went and then listen to them and see if they can tell you how their day went. And you're just sort of just what people do. Um, and, and not much more that it doesn't have to be some sort of, uh, intense, uh, endeavor towards becoming more spiritually involved. It's just people being the people. You know, recently I interviewed a Jungian psychologist and who is a specialist in Carl Jung's own experiences with the dead, uh, which come out in his red book in particular, many uh, conversations. And uh, from her point of view, the afterlife and the unconscious are almost synonymous, that uh, the dead exist in, the I guess she would say, the collective unconscious. And that can be a very scary place at times. It's a, you know, it's a place of dreams and dreams totally defy our expectations for conventional waking reality. I've heard much to the contrary from um, people who style themselves as psychologists or healers or doctors or scientists on what I call the risen side, where we're the ones in the dream and they're the ones in the reality and once we get to where they are suddenly we everything becomes much more clear and clarified and when we look back at our lives on earth we can see that was but a shadow of what's waiting for us to experience and so it's we are kind of in a collective um unconscious i call it an underconsciousness as opposed to an unconscious um, so as we transition, we're kind of lifted out of this this dark underworld of collective unconsciousness. But we just we just don't know that. But there, it's quite a surprise. Supposedly, when we get to the other side, suddenly there's all this light and understanding, and a sense of relief, and a lot of laughter too. Like how could I have worried so much in the way that I did? Um, Jungians um, are just a fascinating bunch of people, and I don't know if Jung would identify with them so, so much. Um, his Red Book is, if anyone has ever get a chance to look at it, is, is quite an astounding thing. It's also extremely intimate and private, and there's a lot of mystery in it as well. It's kind of scary in its own, in its own way. Well, there were uh, many scenes of, uh, it almost reminded me of Dante's uh, visit to hell, in a way, Jung's diving into the depths of his own unconscious mind, where uh, he encountered 
the dead. Uh, in fact, out of it came uh, a book of his seven sermons to the dead in which it seemed as if they, they were calling him to provide them with guidance, psychotherapy of some sort. He himself had a very intense out-of-body experience when he suffered um, a near-fatal illness. And um, when he finally could no longer do that, when his medical situation was corrected and he was like fully back into his body, he went into a deep, deep depression, um, according to his autobiography. And he... He was just, he grieved in a way um, over the loss. He said, how can I, he said something like, how can I, this world here seems so two-dimensional and flat and just black and gray and white cardboard. How can I endure being back in this world another minute after what I just experienced out of my body, um, where he was interacting with other, other people who shared ideas and wisdom with him? the near-death experience field, there are individuals who have this experience of uh, a taste of heaven, and, and then they come back. And for some of, some of them, uh, it's very hard to make that adjustment, especially if, if they have certain habits here on earth, on the earthly plane that it seem inconsistent with what, you know, the realities that they experience. But uh, it's not always easy to change those habits when you come back. Yeah, it's interesting to, to consider that maybe a lot of the sadness or depression or angst that we in our human bodies feel is because we're on some level, often not very conscious, we're aware that there is a bigger, brighter world that we would rather be in, like our true home. People often feel like, I just feel like I want to go home kind of thing. Um, I can speak from experience. When I was uh, around four years old, I think I um, drowned. And, and so th that was probably the most spiritual experience of my life that I still actually think about it almost every day because it was so intense and so beautiful, and I was just a child, and I didn't have all of um, any of cultural's usual ideas or fears. It was just, I was just what I call, I was curious, I was unbiased, I was unafraid. And when they revived me and brought me back, I was furious, and I went into a rage, and I immediately tried to run back and jump into the water, because I wanted to go with the people um, where I'd heard, who I heard speaking to me and where this beautiful music was that I'll never forget. And I went into a depression, much like Jung, I think, for the week after, like I refused to eat and I couldn't sleep and um, I didn't want to do with any, anything with anybody. And in those days, decades ago, there really wasn't um, an opportunity no one thought about, oh, is this child mentally ill or something? They were just kind of worried about me. Uh, but I never shared with the adults around me what had happened or what I had experienced under the water when I went there because I, it was so private and so intimate. Um, so I can, I, I really do resonate with a lot of Jung's um, lamentations about that. I think it was the poet Alexander Pope who said something like, uh, there is neither heaven nor hell, but that the mind makes it so. That uh, when when we pass on, we're um, going to bring some aspects of our mind with us, and our experience there will, will be conditioned by our own thoughts. 
Indeed, I believe that's happening now. We, it, you know, that's our mind is 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 um, projecting, creating, manifesting our world around us. Um, the idea that our eyes are not clear glasses, clear windows of glass that we just see out into everything. Like the inside of our head is totally dark. There's no light that gets in there, but we're getting vibrations from light that then our brain interprets and then projects upon the interior of our skull or our mind as our world. Uh, so it would be, I can't wait to see what happens when, when that changes, when this physical material skull is gone and maybe I have access to more light in some kind of a way and see what kind of a world manifests from my mind in that way. There's a fantastic passage to me in your book, uh, Companion to Grief, in which you're dialoguing with Tim and reflecting on when you were with him and he was uh, on the earth plane and he had a lovely apartment where you used to visit him in a very charming old building. And he described to you that he's really in more or less the same place, but he's made a lot of changes. He's, he's made it much nicer than it was even then. As if he, he, he could build his own environment uh, with his thoughts. Yes. And, and indeed, there are um, instances of communications where it's um, suggested or outright said that as we're daydreaming about, we're sort of projecting things into the universe and we're daydreaming and kind of just playing with our imagination, that we're somehow building, that that is just not all wafting away into some kind of mist, but it's actually coming together in other geographies that are waiting for us. So we're almost like building structures in our minds that can't quite manifest here, but they're manifesting there. And so when we arrive there, often these magnificent, beautiful structures are awaiting for us, depending apparently upon how we structured our interior spiritual life on this plane. Um, if we didn't really attend to the nourishment of our inner spiritual self so much here, we won't have much to show for when we get there. But that's quickly remedied as, as well, because once people understand where they are and there are people to show them how to, to live, they can do as Tim did. They can re-manifest special places that they had before and make improvements and um, – play play with it much, much, much more. I'm also aware that amongst many people uh, who are mediums and have spiritualist home circles, there's, there's a common practice known as rescue circles, where it seems as if, from the point of view of these individuals, that some of the especially newly deceased are, are lost souls. They don't know where they are. They don't know quite what to do, and they need some help. And so that these spiritualist rescue circles try to assist them on, on their journey. And then I heard from another medium who I've interviewed who, who said that uh, this is not an approved practice according to the National Association of Spiritualist Churches, and uh, that they don't really need our help at all. Uh, and I wonder if you have an opinion about all that. I'm I'm sort of on the sidelines watching that because um, 
in my experience, whenever there's any kind of fairly intensive organization um, and then rules arise out of, of that and there's a, there becomes kind of struggles for political power or recognition or that everyone's doing the right thing gets gets a little tricky um and i've i've run into some uh, members from who are like staunch members of spiritualist churches that um are almost dogmatic and it seems to contradict my experience with people in spirit like just dogma goes out the window um i have participated in what um i would call spirit rescues i call them liberation dramas um because usually the, the people that are um, stuck or trapped, research seems to show that when someone has been transitioned in a violent way, like they got blown up or um, so just immediately that it happens so fast that they're very confused. And if there was a lot of fear based or a lot of fear energy that um facilitated that transition that also they're still kind of they're very shaken up and they're not sure what they do so um i've i've had experiences but for me they've been very very rare and whether that's just because um that's not my interest or my calling in trying to to rescue people i pretty much um believe that most people may be on the confused side when they wake up in another place. It's a cat. Um, but very quickly, any kind of confusion is, is cleared up. So that's kind of an ambiguous answer. I, I think you just have to kind of rely on what people's experiences are. I mean, it, it seems like anything, anything is possible. One of the things that you recommend to people who are going through a grieving process is, is that they could consider uh, approaching it in a playful way. Could you say more about that? Well, I was asking you to because it was your recommendation, as I recall. Uh, I'm sort of curious on, on what kind of thoughts that brought to you or ideas because it's sort of meant as a stimulating idea not to tell people what to do, but to kind of just raise their curiosity, like, oh, this this could be a playful kind of thing rather than, than a mournful thing. Yeah, I, I think that's what you were suggesting, is that people don't have to follow a, uh, a ritualized pattern of, of how to grieve, or they don't have to be stuck in their grief. I had a relative, for example, who lost her husband, and to my knowledge and recollection she never recovered from from that death so it raises certain questions like why you know what what was the resistance to recovery was there some sort of belief system um was there a, a poor ability to control mastery over one's thinking or one's feelings or to be able to pay attention to one's feelings or was there a lot of usually there's a lot of fear um that a person feels abandoned in some way and they may start regressing psychologically and emotionally and uh, regressing meaning sort of become almost like small frightened children um because these 
people or uh, are now gone or people that they relied on. Um, they may have been carrying conscious or less unconscious fears and worries and belief systems that were kind of latent, but then get triggered by the person's transition and they get overwhelmed by these things. They may start getting kind of neurotic about it. Um, it's even possible that it finally gets that person some attention that they need a lot of hugs that they haven't gotten over the years. And so they also just need some kind of, of, of consolation or some kind of parenting that they never got. Well, I think especially in the days, I mean, this is going back, I presume they were married maybe in the 1940s at a time when a woman, her whole identity is wrapped up in being Mrs. So-and-so and a part of a dyadic mutual relationship and uh, that's who she was 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 the wife of this man and i guess she never really adjusted to living for herself right and and then we may see other people who are it's almost like this miraculous blooming when the other person transitions out of their life suddenly now they're kind of it's a relief and um we talk about that in the book that sometimes there are people that we're kind of glad to see go and we, we don't want to admit it, but we just say good riddance, you know, they're out of my lives. And that's seen as a valid human response to, to grief that we don't have to pretend to mourn someone. If we don't feel like it, we don't have to go to their funeral or memorial services if, 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 if we don't feel like it. But it does seem to me that, the dying process or the grieving process presents an opportunity for those who uh, wish to uh, explore it to begin to develop a deeper understanding of the relationship between those of us here on the earth plane and and that large community that you refer to as the risen and and with whom you seem to have an ongoing daily intimate relationship with and I always have since I was a little child, and I believe most, all children, we all do, um, have a lot of these extended relationships that were sort of talked out of or ridiculed out of, you know, as, as we get older. That did not happen to me. Um, so the grieving process in my families was seeing... Um, maybe in limited ways, as opportunities to become stronger, some people might say. And so, bringing that forward with me as I continue to experience grief, um, sooner or later it was bound to happen where uh, someone would go and I would be really, really um, overcome, overcome by it. So, as I had these, these newer grief experiences that I wasn't quite prepared for, um, I wanted to learn from those experiences and the people who were, um, the risen people wanted me to understand their viewpoint about what I'm calling grief or what my culture or family is calling grief. And they're saying that this grief has a purpose. It has meaning to it, but not necessarily just the limited fear-based meaning that we give to it, but it's meant as a process that's very complex and, um, 
very human and very mysterious and very beautiful. And, and one had um, put it in a very poetic way that grief was meant sort of, first we're, we're supposed to allow ourselves to float on the waves of grief and grief is meant, the waves of grief that come and go are meant to carry us away from that event from the past and carry us forward to new shores of understanding, to new shores of life where they are and they're waiting for us to kind of get beached on so then we can join them. So our grief can actually, we, we want to get carried away by our grief, but we want to, the question is, can we more consciously direct the boat that that we're in? And I use that, that, that Zen saying, um, that likens death to getting into a boat that then goes out to sea and sinks. Sounds, sounds terrible. But the risen are asking us to consider what happens next after, after the boat goes out and sinks. That's not the end to it. There's, there's an exit and there's an entryway into much more life, much more beautiful, much more vibrant. And it sounds um, contradictory or paradoxical that something that we believe is so terrible as grief would actually transform into joy. But as far as my experience goes, that it can be transformed to joy. I think it was meant to be transformed into something higher. Otherwise, we just sort of get stuck and we're repeating the same thing. But if we want to advance and evolve, we've got to be able to become very facile at taking our own energies and reinterpreting them and playing with them and experimenting with them and exploring with them and seeing if we can raise all these half-formed things into more formed things, and that includes any form of sadness or anger or, or, or anything that's fear-based in that way. is always trying to evolve into something better. I understand that one of the common experiences that people have in, in the grieving process uh, is what is sometimes referred to as signs, that the, the, the departed are trying to let us know that they're okay, that they're alive, and people will see butterflies or maybe as, as you saw with Tim, he sort of materialized for a moment in, in your room. And that's a common thing or dream experiences that people have, such as Carl Jung reports quite extensively. But there's always a, a sort of struggle to figure out, is this a real communication or is it sort of psychological wish fulfillment? Yes, they do want signs. Of course we do. We just want to hear that they're okay and alive and well. Um, we want the relationship to continue on. And so then we'll start running, looking through books or Googling it or talking to psychics or people trying to ask to interpret. And the only real answer is going to come from inside of ourselves. And so we have to develop that ability of spiritual self-introspection about how to go in how to recognize, even if everyone else is saying that that's a bunch of baloney, somehow I can feel I know that there's something more to this little bird showing up and paying me a lot of attention, or I know there's something more to that this this butterfly is happening, and it's stimulating my curiosity. So, that's where we kind of want to um, move away from all the so-called experts or information or self-help books and turn to the self-help book that's inside of us or to actually reach out to the person that we think is sending the sign and because it's it's an attempt it's like them trying to call us on the phone you know so are we going to pick it up and say hello who's there are we just going to run around saying can you tell me who called me on the phone do you think this was a real phone call instead we should pick it up and find ways to pick it up and listen to them um one of the things that i love so much that 
that came to me from the book was the idea that maybe they're waiting for a sign from us. That um, often it's sort of arrogant that we're just sort of waiting, well, why don't they get in touch with me? And why aren't they thinking about me? And they must not love me anymore. They forgot about me. But maybe they're thinking the same thing because so often our world wants us, especially Western society, wants us to get over the grief. You know, we're only going to get so many days off from work to recover from grief, which is so crazy. Um, that we kind of say, well, I've just got to get on with life and then life, you know, life and kids and animals and job and everything comes in and sort of distracts us from it. And, and we kind of forget about them in a way. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it's this idea that maybe the people, the risen people are waiting for a sign from us, which just means they sort of need us to pick up the, the, um, the spiritual telephone and, and call them to speak to them, to continue to talk to them when we're quiet at night as we're falling to bed or, or, um, I think that they're waiting for a sign from us as well, too. And um, so often the signs that they send us are so subtle um, or we're so caught up in the, the, the chaos and cacophony of the world around us that we fail to recognize them. And I don't know if they're it might be a disappointment to them, but after a while, they kind of give up. They kind of stop and say, okay, this is not the time. You know, he's not in a place where he can understand a sign. But they do tend to be very persistent and very diligent. And and so then maybe when we're in our least resistant modes of consciousness, like dreaming, they may um, appear to us in, into a dream. So um, it's, just, it's just an open field of exploration, experimentation, and play. Carl Jung seemed to have a sense that when the dead appeared to him in a dream, he could recognize that they were really, he called them the dead, you call them the risen, but, but he, he understood that they were not simply figments of his own psyche, that they were distinctly different from other aspects of his unconscious mind. Yeah. So, so he, he was well acquainted with, um, those unconscious aspects that he, he had names for, like the anima and the animus. And these are aspects of ourself that are sort of dramatizing to get our attention towards becoming more, um, whole as a human being, integrated as a human being. But he was able to, because of his mind, he was so, so sensitively curious, um, and, very brave, maybe because he wasn't, he wasn't, if he was afraid, he was just very brave that he learned to recognize what I call the signature of a risen person that you can just feel. And, and, um, with, with, um, some of my psychotherapy patients who have such dreams, they'll say, no, I know this was the person. I said, well, how do you know? Because it just felt like them. Um, there's this, at one time, um, there's an aspect of uh, spiritual um, mediumship um, involving the use of technology where people, risen people are able to somehow connect through us through radio signals or television signals or electromagnetic signals and sometimes can record their voice onto tape or um, other electronic means and um, it's been shown that, say, someone were to get their mother left them a message 
um, on their answering machine, and they can hear it as clear as a bell. But when they play it for other people, other people say, well, I just kind of think I hear something, but it's sort of staticky, or no, I don't think so. And the other person, no, I can absolutely hear it. And I believe that's because that particular vibration was customized just alone for that person. It's a very special um, telegram that's customized just for their ears, just for their eyes, just for their emotions and feelings. And so people will say, even in dreams, like, I, it just, it, I know it. I can't tell you how I know it. I just know because I feel it. And, and something I always teach my, my patients um, is that feelings always tell us the truth. Feelings never lie to us. Our minds lie to us all the time. I had one, one such thing. It was very um, orchestrated, I was called, where Tim actually left a, a message on my answering machine many years ago. And one of the books, just, he, I finally asked him, I said, you know, it seemed like just such a hit and miss kind of thing on my end because I wasn't there to... to to pick up when you called and so you left a message for me but what happened on your on your side what was your experience and he launched into a very detailed technological discussion or, or technology as they understand it there about what was going on so it's just the more you get into this the more fascinating it is i find well people who are grieving come from obviously many different backgrounds. Not long ago, I interviewed a lady who had been a war reporter working in uh, Iraq. And uh, she was very hard-boiled. She was an atheist. And uh, her fiancé died suddenly while while she was away and she began experiencing signs and then then there was an apparition that appeared a frightening apparition but eventually she came to realize that that she had mediumistic talents and and went to the uh, spiritualist college in London uh, or in England the Arthur Findlay College and became a certified spiritualist medium a, a complete change in uh, her orientation as a result of uh, these signs and, and connections. Right. So, so what does that say? That there's just something about that experience um, that goes above and beyond the, the current experience, that there's a transformational aspect to it. So, there's, again, it's kind of referring back to that transformational aspect of grief is that these events, as horrible or tragic as they may first um, manifest, can trigger uh, perhaps latent um, spiritual sensing, sensing abilities in people. Um, so, you, you probably know from a lot of the studies that, say, people have had near-death experiences um, come back completely transformed, almost as if the reset button was hit in some sort of a way. Um, so even a death, which is like a shock to the system can act as a reset button. And it often sort of shakes people up in such a way that they start having, um, intense dreams they've never had before. They just start having intense feelings they've never had before. They start having just very odd synchronicities happening in their life that they've never happened before. Like something is sort of like they've, they've broken into, um, a newer world. And, uh, so, I believe everyone actually has um, mediumistic abilities, if that's what we want to call them. Uh, and you can see some of the oldest cultures uh, haven't lost 
lost touch with that. They've codified it, say, like certain Native American tribes um, that I'm familiar with have codified it in certain ways to say, so only this person does that and only this person does that. And the rest of us have to go out and do the hunting and the cooking and stuff. But we're going to have the shaman um, sort of act as a, a, a go-between for us and, and things like that. So there are some people that are more gifted at it than others. But I believe everyone has potential to um, so that you don't have to go to a medium to get a reading that if you want to, you can learn how to do it yourself for yourself. Well, there is a sense, I think I feel it, that it's an important thing for everybody to have some sort of a spiritual connection, a spiritual path. And we live in such a materialistic culture that, that some people are very defiant and, and, and they don't want to do it at all. They become very hard boiled and, and atheistic and materialistic and which, which can be fine for a time. I think it's a useful phase for everybody, but. A, a grieving process is, could be viewed as an invitation to expand your consciousness. Sure. I mean, you've heard people say, like, an, an expected or an unexpected or even an expected death changed their whole lives. Like, it just, they couldn't have predicted how their lives would have changed or how suddenly they, they realized that they were trapped um, or inhibited in, in other relationships or jobs or careers, and suddenly somehow that person's death made them think in different ways. So, so it's just it's not death really. It's just life and more life that that is actually occurring. Well, August, go forth. This has been a lovely conversation. Uh, it's really heartening for me to interact with you because you seem so well grounded in this understanding of the way in which the two worlds interpenetrate each other. August, thank you so much for being with me. You're welcome. Thanks. I, I, I hope we can continue some more of this discussion. It's, it's a lot of fun. I'd be very happy to do that. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.